And now, here they are, the Beatles! Hi, I'm Justin Shears, and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser-known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. And soon, Paul, you are leaving for the States again. Yeah. First of all, we go to the West Coast, which is San Francisco, you know, all around there. And apparently, when we get to San Francisco, um, it's been arranged that we'll have a ticker tape welcome, you know, about those. I mean, that's great. I can't imagine that but it sounds very good and we do uh, concerts in very big places like Hollywood Bowl and the Cow Palace where all this election stuff for the President of America has been recently Um, and that place actually uh, one thing about that place is it holds 18,000 people and somebody told us from America that the tickets the 18,000 tickets were sold out in three hours which you know I really can't believe it's still amazes me, it's, it's ridiculous. We go all over America, we go to 25 big cities uh, playing similar type dates to that and we finish up actually in New York, I think, doing um, a big charity concert there in New York and then after all that we come back to England. How long do you stay in the States? No. Well it'll be about four to five weeks, more like five weeks actually. The unprecedented success of their first whirlwind visit to the United States in February 1964 guaranteed the Beatles a return trip to strike while the American iron was still hot. A 35-day concert tour, taking in 22 cities in Canada and the United States, was planned for August and September, the hope being that the Beatles could further entrench themselves in America, this time by playing to more and larger live audiences rather than simply the television exposure and handful of concerts they had enjoyed six months earlier. The itinerary was packed with next to no downtime for the Beatles. Of course, media exposure on such an international tour was critical to its success, and this longer trip would feature something new. Three journalists would follow the Beatles to every stop they made. The only American to do so was Larry Kane, a newsman from Miami, Florida, who had initially been less than enthusiastic about being sent on such an assignment. Just by accident, I wrote a letter to Brian Epstein uh, asking him to interview them in Jacksonville, Florida, which was their closest stop to Miami, one single interview. I got a letter back uh, asking me to go on the entire tour for the sum of $3,000, which would cover 35 days of travel in 25 cities. And uh, I told my bosses, I don't want to go. There were too many big stories happening that year in America. And why would I, a newsman, want to uh, travel with a band, a band that would be here in uh, September and gone by December? The Beatles would line up day after day in each new city they landed in to face the tedious questions posed by the local press, many of which were the same, or even more ridiculous, than those they had answered their first time around. An endless stream of banal questions about haircuts, love interests, how much money they earned, fame, and what they would do when the bubble burst would eventually see the Beatles stop playing along with the local media on future tours. Larry Kane, however, 
decided to take a different approach. And one of the reasons I got along with them so well is that I didn't ask them questions like the older 30 and 40 year olds who despise them uh, would ask them questions like, what do you eat for breakfast? What do you like in a woman? Do you like blondes, brunettes, redheads? Uh, did you wash your hair? Did you shower today? Uh, my questions were about what was happening. Something that happened at a concert, something that was happening with racial tensions around the world, uh, things that were happening in terms of the escalation of the war in Vietnam, the aftermath of the assassination of the president. It was, um, you know, it was great talking to them. Uh, they, they liked sort of putting me on and uh, treating me as a straight man to their humor. This is Larry Kane on tour with the Beatles, reporting from the San Francisco International Airport. Paul, what, uh, what do you, on your tour, uh, do you find it hard to go 30 days and 30 nights like this? Well, this is this is the first time we've tried it, you know, and we haven't done it yet. So uh, I know I met you down in Miami in February. I don't know if you remember, and I'll be on your plane. Sure. I'll be on your plane with you for the entire tour, Larry Kane from WFUN, and uh, I want to welcome you to the United States. Uh, Thanks very much. The disc jockeys especially appreciate the help that you've given American radio. Thanks. Well, you, you've boosted. Really appreciate it. That. You know, you brought uh, a new uh, a new uh, let's say wave of music in, and thank you. Thank you, you know, because you've given us a lot of help too. Thanks. And we'll be seeing you on the plane. Yeah, okay, see. In this episode, we'll focus on the Larry Kane interviews, which reveal a deeper than normal way of questioning worldwide celebrities than was ordinarily applied to acts like the Beatles. I think we better give up and give them what they want, huh? Okay. Ready? Here they are! The Beatles! After playing the Cow Palace in San Francisco, the Las Vegas Convention Center and the Seattle Coliseum, the Beatles made their way across the border into Canada for a single show at Vancouver's Empire Stadium. These larger venues were becoming more and more necessary to accommodate Beatle audiences, which were rapidly outgrowing standard concert halls and theatres. In a modern world where stadium shows are now the norm for international stars, it's easy to forget that the Beatles were the first to play such large arenas. Capitol Records' earlier plan to record a live Beatles show at New York's Carnegie Hall on their first visit in February 1964 had been scuppered by the American Federation of Musicians. So an alternative deal was struck to commit their 23rd of August show at the Hollywood Bowl to tape with a view to releasing it as an album exclusively in the US soon after. While it was recorded and mixed almost immediately, the Beatles themselves felt it wasn't worthy of release, and the project was shelved until its eventual resurrection in 1977, albeit as a mixture of songs from their 1964 and 1965 performances at the venue. Got something to say that might cause you pain. I catch you talking to that boy again. I'm gonna let you down and leave you flat. I'm gonna let you down and leave 
everybody thank you. Yeah. thank you very much and good evening How are you? All right? the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl flying visits to Denver Cincinnati and New Jersey followed with packed venues in each city in New York the scene of their first triumphant appearances in February an unusual event took place during a fairly routine mobbing of the band as they tried to enter the Delmonico Hotel. Last night when you arrived here at the hotel, I understand Ringo lost his St. Christopher's medal and about half of his shirt. Did you go through any of the fracas? No, I, we, the three of us got in, you see, but apparently one of the police didn't think Ringo was Ringo and he just sort of stopped him. <laughs> and that was it, you know, because everyone was, everyone grabbed him then and uh, a girl ripped his shirt. Ringo, the incident last night where the uh, medallion was pulled off, have you ever faced this before on your many trips? Um, no, that's about the closest I've ever been to sort of being got. Did you, did you fight back at all or uh, was... I'm just trying to get in, you know, just trying to get away. Was there enough police protection out there? Yeah, well, you know, once the police sort of found out, you know, or saw the kids getting me, they, um, they run over and got me away. I haven't had it off my neck since I was 21. It's three years and it's sort of a keepsake. And if anyone's got... It's just a gold thing, Christopher. If it anyone's got it, please pass it. It is gold. I only weigh a gold. Right, I'll tell you what you do. As a matter of fact, I'm sure we can make this deal right now with Ringo. Anyone who has the St. Christopher medallion that they tore off Ringo as he was coming in the hotel room, if you will come to our WABC suite with the medallion, we will see that you meet Ringo in person. And he will thank you personally if you will bring the medallion back. Now, uh, Cousin Brucey and I are going to go down on the street now uh, because we know a lot of the people that are listening uh, right now to ABC are down on the street. And if you do have the medallion, uh, if you'll give it to us, we'll see that you get to meet Ringo personally, right? Yeah, that's a deal. Aware of Ringo's obvious distress, 
Disc jockeys from WABCAM jumped on the opportunity to outdo their competitors by launching an appeal to find the medal and promised the person who took it a personal meeting with Ringo, sealed with a kiss on the cheek from the man himself, if they returned it. Naturally, it didn't take long for the culprit to step forward. Um, well, I got it when I was 21, you know, for my 21st, and I've never taken it off. And we saw it's, it's supposed to be the patron saint of travellers, and we do a lot of travelling, and I've been all right up to now, so I'd like to keep it. Well, Ringo, who gave you the medal? An auntie. Very good, your aunt, fine. All right, I'll tell you what we're going to do right now. We uh, Last night, after, well, we left you, we started interviewing about 150 people. Everyone started calling WABC Radio, listening to your plea and our pleas, and I think we found it. I hope we found it. Uh, so I want I. to introduce you to the girl right now. Angie? Uh, Angie yeah. McGowan. Uh, Angie, sweetheart, this is... Who is that? This is your, your idol. This is Ringo. How are you doing? Good yes. to see you. There we go. That's that it, it, right, it. Is that it? Very right. small, but it means a lot. Sorry, that's right. a shirt. So what do you say? I'll I know. buy another shirt, but I can't buy one. And these. before we go on, Scott, I'd like Angie to introduce. Now, there are three other girls involved in this. As a matter of fact, you're very fortunate, or maybe you're not fortunate. These other three girls in gray, they're all going for you. Angie, would you introduce your friends to Ringo? Because this is a treat they must real loud into the mic, honey. This is Carol Coyne. Hello, Carol. How are you? And oh. Another kiss. How are you doing? Hello. Ringo's oh, not kissing another one. Hello. How are you? All right. And Evelyn just got a kiss too. This is just great. And oh, another. Angie is getting another kiss. <laughs> well, I know you're very happy. That is the St. Christopher's. That medal. is the yes. And it has Thanks been so. returned. I want to thank oh. everybody. Uh, I also got a free pen and free pieces of paper. <laughs> Larry Kane not only had access to the Fab Four themselves, but also talked regularly with the Beatles entourage including manager Brian Epstein. With me here in New York is a gentleman you've heard about quite a bit in the last year, Mr. Brian Epstein from London. When you come over to the United States on a tour like this, uh, do you notice any different fan reaction? Uh, is it uh, more intense over here, would you say that right now, than it is in Britain? Or have the, have the British uh, population, has the population uh, been accustomed to and acclimated to the Beatles? Or is it more new over here in America? Um, one would have thought, one, it's difficult to say actually, it, it appears so to us, but then I suppose it is true that the sort of fan um, adulation here is a sort of bottled up thing, um, and therefore it's, when it's let loose it has to be rather wild. But on the other hand, we are playing to much larger audiences, and we're getting this kind of thing outside hotels and screens and crowds and so on. Uh, practically everywhere, and I'm sure that when the Beatles make their next British tour, the, the, the reaction is going to be exactly the same. In fact, although one would have expected Britain to be getting a bit tired of it, um, it hasn't. And when we left uh, London Airport to come here, I've never seen so many fans uh, at London Airport to see the boys off, you know, ever. It was bigger than ever. Well, sincerely, one of the things that has impressed me since I've been on the tour about the Beatles, all four of them, is the fact that they're so natural in their attitudes uh, and in their habits. Do you think this naturalness has, uh, this naturalness has played part of uh, success for the Beatles, being natural, yeah. na natural human beings, personalities? Yes, yes, they're very natural. The increasing hysteria at Beatles concerts and public receptions was beginning to worry their management, but not so much the Beatles themselves. John explains. With us now we have John Lennon. John, uh, I know you've been uh, cooped up somewhat sort of in the room. Uh, how, how have you enjoyed your New York visit looking out at those uh, several thousand fans? Well, it's marvelous, you know. We like seeing them outside the window. Ever want to go down and say hello? Yeah, but we, then no, nobody would have a lesson, you know. 
they won't even let us wave. We're going to ask them if we can wave today, because that's the least we can do if they're all standing there, because they don't see us, you know, because we get dragged out through back entrances and things, so we're going to try and wave. Do you like uh, New York City for any particular reason? I like all cities, you know, better than countryside. And I like New York because it's big, you know, I like London because it's big. I like big cities. Have you gotten to go anywhere here? Not this time. We did last time. We saw quite a bit, you know. John, uh, when they stormed uh, the stage last night at Forest Hills, uh, I'm sure that's happened to you before. Do you ever get worried that they might get through? No, we, you know, we, I always have hysterics when they get on stage. Because one last night I got George, and he had, I could hear all the wrong notes coming out. He was trying to carry on playing, you know, the girl hanging around his neck. It was funny. Do you ever, uh, ever get frightened at any of these experiences on, on stage or when you're being uh, pursued, let's say? Not really. You know, the, the, we get battered mostly by people trying to guard us. You know, they get in the way half the time. They're always grabbing us and shoving us in the wrong thing. But on stage, I always, I always feel safe even when they break through. I don't know, it must be some kind of, you know, I just feel as though I'm all right when, when I'm plugged in and I don't feel as though they get me. Philadelphia was next on the itinerary, and Larry Kane was again there to capture the Beatles' thoughts on a range of topics, including those which most celebrities avoided or were instructed by management not to talk about for fear of alienating their fans. We're backstage at Philadelphia. This is Larry Kane. John, one thing that amazes me about you is, uh, I don't know, you read articles and uh, half of them are untrue like we talked about earlier on the tour. But your amazing frankness about things, uh, there are many, uh, let's say, uh, stars and big people in entertainment who have really hit it big, who are afraid of what they say. And I think the Beatles are probably uh, the first fantastic uh, number one uh, pop international uh, personalities that, that are not directed in this way. I notice nobody directs you at your press conferences. Everything you say is your own. Do you ever fall short of something to say? You've never fabricated anything. I mean, this is all your own opinion. Uh, yeah. I'm not, you know, saying that you would, but it just seems you're so natural. You know, we would if somebody came up with something good to say. Yeah. You know, if somebody came up and said, this so-and-so reporter's going to ask you something, and here's a great answer, we'd use it, which is like doing a film. Normally, we just, at conferences and that, we just ad-lib, and a lot of it's not, not funny at all. You just take the rough with the smooth, don't you, Lally? <laughs> Another thing, Ringo especially, you read fan magazines, and uh, you see, I'm not, a, I'm not a disc jockey. I don't know if you're aware of this. I'm news director at the no, station. I'm not aware of this. Get out of the room! <laughs> And, and I'm a, I'm a newsman, and uh, you look at the world today and uh, see this uh, so-called so Cold War. What are your thoughts about uh, a war uh, in the possible military service, if it ever came? I hate the thought you know, of war anyway. And I always think to myself, well, the next war I always imagine that they'll be throwing them dirty bombs at each other, you know, the atom bombs, and, you know, so if you win, you, you, you know, there's no one can win anyway. Even if you've got a bit of ground left, you've got all that, you know, contamination in the air and everything. You think your music takes away, uh, maybe makes people a little more lighthearted and uh, takes away from all this Cold War fear? Because it's in, it's in most people, you know, the fact that, uh, well, it can happen any day, you know. I'm sure uh, the Americans are more conscious of the next war than the Britons are, probably, because they've got more power or something. Or they've got more fallout shelters. But the next, you know, I can't visualize the next war. That's me, me, me John told me. I'm, no, I'm just agreeing. The thing is, you just hear about the last war and you think, yeah, okay, they went around battering hell out of each other with a couple of bricks and bombs. But nothing, 
you know, it happened, but everybody was left. So many things were left standing, but the next was sort of the end. I, yeah. I can't really visualize anybody going that potty no, and doing anything, you know. No. Only a mother like Hitler. One more question. Uh, I know you're about to get set for a big show here in Philadelphia, and the people are pouring in outside. When you go on a tour like this, and you go from day to day, from town to town, does it drain you any, as far as your, your ability to get out on stage and do your best? Have you found this out? Not on stage, you know, because there's, there's something about it. We always get dead nervous before we go on stage. And nine times out of ten, we suddenly feel tired about half an hour before when we've got to get changed. And that's just something that's been happening for two years. We always, suddenly, all of a sudden, everybody's tired and changing into the suits and putting the shirts on. If you are, no. And then just as soon as you get on, it's all right. song from the film we just made and the song is A Hard Day's Night It's been a hard day's night and I've been working like a dog It's been a hard day's night I should be sleeping like a love But when I get home to you I find the things that you do will make me feel I'm alright you know I work all day to get your money to buy a thing And it's worth it just to hear you say You're gonna give me everything 
one-night-only appearances in Indianapolis, Milwaukee, Chicago and Detroit, the home of the Beatles' loved Motown records, preceded another foray into Canada, with two shows each in Toronto and Montreal, cities which would later loom large in the life of John Lennon and Yoko Ono as the Beatles disintegrated. It was at this point in the trip that the Beatles were confronted with the stark realities of race relations in America in 1964. Larry Kane explains. Well, it all started, uh, ironically, in a conversation I had with them in Las Vegas, Nevada. The station, my station in Miami, had advised me that the Gator Bowl concert, and Gator Bowl is a large football stadium, or was a large football stadium in Jacksonville, was going to be segregated. And the minute they found out to a man, they stood up in the room and they said, we're not going to go there, we're not going to do that. And Brian Epstein, their manager, just kept turning whiter and whiter not really understanding what, what was going to happen. And he, he began a negotiation on, I think it was about August 20th, 1964. And by September 11th, they had secured the fact that the place would be integrated for the first time ever, which changed things throughout the South. And I thought that was a seminal moment in the Beatles' history. What about this uh, comment that I heard about uh, from you, Paul, concerning uh, racial integration at the various performances? We uh, we don't like it if there's any uh, segregation or anything because we're not used to it. You know, we've never played to segregated audiences before, and it just seems mad to me. You know, I mean, it may seem right to some people, but to us, it just seems a bit daft. Well, you're going to play yeah. Jacksonville Fire Day. Do you anticipate any kind of well, difference of that opinion? I don't know, really. You know, because I don't know what people in America are like, but I think. It'd be a bit silly to segregate people because, you know, I mean, I, I don't think uh, colored people are any different, you know, they're just the same as anyone else. But, you know, over here, there are some people who think that there's animals or something, but I just think it's stupid, you know. You can't treat other human beings like animals. And uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't mind them sitting next to me. Great, you know, because some of our best friends are colored people. 
So, uh, from the attitude, and I hope that... Uh, well, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's the way we all feel. You know. That's the way we all feel, and a lot of people in England feel that way, you know, because there's never any segregation in concerts in England, and in fact, if there was, we probably wouldn't play them. Thank you. We'd like to carry on now with a newer song to our latest album, song called Things We Said Today.
The increasingly dangerous behaviour of crowds again came under the spotlight throughout the latter half of the tour, and it was up to the Beatles' road crew to keep their precious cargo safe. Larry Kane spoke with road manager Neil Aspinall and press officer Derek Taylor about the lengths they now had to go to to get to and from concert venues. Neil, I'd like to know how you got the Beatles out and fooled everybody last night. Well, it was so hard to get them in that we, I decided with the chief of police and with the police captain that when they came off stage, we straight off stage, turn right into a lift and go down to the basement. When we got there, we went through sort of subterranean passages, through boiler houses, etc., and then through where all the newspapers and people had been for the convention, right the way through to an underground passage with just one-way traffic going through it. And from there we got into a police van and went the wrong way out of the passage. The police had blocked it off, you see, so we could go through the wrong way down this one-way street, across a parking lot, and then down Pacific Avenue to the hotel. Was this one of the most ingenious ways that you have had to figure out to get them away from some hall or some location? No. No. What is one of the most ingenious ways that you have done it? Oh, there's been so many that I just can't think of one that's much more ingenious than others. A lot in England, we've gone from the actual theatre underground and come out in other buildings and up lifts. Oh, you know, we've gone a couple of blocks underground before we've, we've actually come out into the cars or the van or whatever we go out in, you know. Have you ever disguised them? Have... No, never disguised them. Neil, uh, you've had many experiences. Was there ever one time when you just were at a loss for a plan, when you just didn't know what to do? No. I can never be at a loss for a plan, or we'd still be in the theatre now. <laughs> now, their car drew up outside the convention hall and was immediately surrounded by kids. How it happened, I don't know, because everybody had been warned that Beatle crowds were unpredictable and wild. Neil, as usual, guided the driver what to do, whether to move on a bit or to stop still. The police bashed their way through. I've never seen uh, movement like it. They just had to crash through to protect the crowd from themselves. One man at least, who as far as I could see had been climbing across the bonnet, had his leg either broken or very badly bruised. And it really was an indescribable sight. And then the police managed to clear away for the Beatles, at least to open the door and look like getting out. The door then closed again because it became unsafe and Leffler ordered everybody out of our car to go and help. So there we all were, separated from the Beatles by the crowd and ourselves in danger of being battered by the police, who I'm not blaming the police because they did have an incredibly difficult job to do and they had to protect the lives of the Beatles which were endangered. As the American tour drew to a close, Larry Kane was ever present at each venue in each city gathering the thoughts of the Beatles about all sorts of things. Today we started here in America, the uh, Democratic National Convention. Good luck. Uh, 
In Atlantic City, of course, they're having their battles. But one of the, the real questions today, <coughs> entertainment versus politics, is should an entertainer be involved in the political spectrum of this country? What do you think, as far as yourself, and if you were in America, or yourself mm. as in mm. politics in England? Well, it depends on the entertainer. You know, the only reason why we never get involved in politics is because we don't know anything about it. I mean, uh, you know, probably if we knew and we're interested in politics, then we, we'd probably take sides, you know, but we just don't happen to know a lot about the policies of uh, the parties in England, and we know even less about them here. I just know that I don't like the look of Goldwater, you know, and, and the things he says, but, uh, I mean, it doesn't mean he's no good, you know, it's just I personally don't say, I'm not very keen on Goldwater at the moment, but, I mean, I still don't know what his policies are in the, in the full. I've just heard him say one or two things which are a bit uh, risque, you know. Do you find that the uh, general uh, viewpoint of, mm. of England? Yeah, it is actually because, um, it's probably because most of the things that we get over there, like um, interviews and TV, film and things, that he's saying is sensational things like, you know, the, um, the bit about moderation is not a virtue and extremism is a virtue. No, extremism's no vice in the cause of liberty. Well, that's a bit soft anyway, you know, I think. And he should never have said that. And that's the sort of thing that gets back to England. That's the sort of thing that makes people... Um, I think he's generally disliked in England. John, we uh, talked to Paul and George the other day about the American political situation. Uh, you're from uh, Britain. Uh, what are your outside views on it? Well, I don't know, you read in Britain about nasty old gold, gold water, you know. I don't know anything about him, really. When Paul was asked the other day, he said, I don't like him. But I don't know enough about him not to like him, you know. I think there must be something funny about him, the way everybody's going mad. But, you know, I'm not interested enough, you know, as long as he doesn't turn out to be Hitler, like they keep saying. And George, I asked you this before. Uh, in relationship to the American press, uh, so many of them come to you uh, in so many cities. Uh, how do you feel about this? Does it ever get to you? Uh, yeah, we always see the press every place we go, and we always read the papers the next day. And usually the majority of papers, I'd say about 95 out of 100, usually good. But the odd five, you know, we do get, they dig at us, you know, but it's... You know, we accept it because it's usually written by a gang of narcs anyway. Crummy people who, who don't like us from the beginning and they, you know, regardless of what we say and do, you know, they've got it in for us anyway. But it doesn't worry us. The other day you mentioned uh, to me that uh, you'd rather, uh, we asked you if you wanted to live in America and you said that you'd, you know, like to spend uh, your entire life as a permanent resident of Great Britain. Uh, when you come over here, do you see a basic change in philosophy, a change in the people, or is it... Uh, generally the same mood of atmosphere and feeling over in England. Is there a difference in this country? We both speak the same language. Uh, how do you feel about this? Is it different to you? Yeah, it's different, you know, in as much as people talk different, drive on the other side and have hamburgers and all that, but basically I think it's the same. Oh, the, um, the people who run this country you know, uh, it's a bit different, I'd say, I'd say, to the Parliament of Great Britain. But, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's not all that different, except that, you know, it seems to be more happening over here, more things that I like, like lots of TV, radios, drive-ins, and all that sort of stuff. But, 
I do like Britain because, well, the main reason it's it's a great place, and I was born there anyway, and you can't, you know, move just like that. I think I wouldn't mind living here for a few months each year, but not permanently. George, thank you very much. Thank you. John, it's great working with you. Great working with you, Larry. When you're over here, do you miss England? Uh, do you ever get a little homesick, even though you're achieving great success over here and uh, you're having uh, some good times? Oh, yeah, I get, get homesick all right every other day. Holy. <laughs> and what about, uh, again, the gifts? I notice uh, more and more you've been getting more and more gifts from fans. Um, what was the most unusual gift you've ever received? I know there's so many. Of them, but this, is there ever one that sticks out in your mind? <laughs> I once received a bra. <laughs> you did? Yeah, with I Love John embroidered on it. I thought it was pretty original. I didn't keep it, mind you. It didn't fit. How'd you like Key West? It was all right for a swamp. <laughs> no, it wasn't bad, you know. Here's a question a lot of people would think it uh, kind of ridiculous to ask entertainers this, but I'm going to because a lot of people are interested in your opinion. So much of these world conflicts going on, everybody's fighting each other. What would be uh, your personal solution to stopping uh, uh, war? Uh, what way or method? I don't think there is one, you know. Not if, you, if everybody was all rich and happy and each country had all they wanted, they'd still want the next bit. I don't think there'll ever be any solution. Only just, you know, a sort of power block where everybody's got the same weapons. Being from the other side of the Atlantic, the Beatles' impressions of America were seen as gripping news content for their American fans. As the tour wrapped up in September 1964, Larry Kane quizzed the Beatles about what they thought about the country and what they had seen and experienced over the past five weeks. Now this is your first tour that uh, you've actually seen all of America and uh, up to now you've seen just about every section. Uh, off your role as a performer, what do you think of America as a country, the cities and the land and the people? I think it's marvelous, you know, I like it, especially places like New York and Hollywood, you know, I like the big places. And uh, it's amazing to see the way they built like a place like Las Vegas. Whoever thought of building a place in the middle of a desert, you know, things like that, marvelous. George, uh, what do you think of America? Just, just as a person coming over here. It's good. It's good fun. In fact, it's much better than most places we've been. You know, because there's more things to do, more things happening. You know, and there's. If you've got nothing at all to do, at least you can listen to the radio. You know, and you've got a big selection of radio programs and TV programs. I like it. I think we all like it over here. How do you feel about going home? Well, I'm looking forward to it, you know, but um, I wouldn't mind another week in America. You wouldn't, would you? No. I like America. You ever think about living here? I'd never live here for a full year. I'd live here, say, six months out of a year, then go back and rest. I don't I mean, even if you're not playing, the pace is still much faster than in Britain. Where would you want to live here if you did come over here for a period of time? Um, New York and Miami. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Well, this next song will have to be our last one for this evening. Yes! Oh, yes! You know, sorry, but uh, contrary to public opinion, we've never done any longer than this. So, we'd like to thank everybody here tonight for coming along. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
and and we all and we all hope that you've enjoyed the show. Have you enjoyed the show? Good. Great. Lovely. Thank you very much. And we'd like to finish off with a song which was recently on one of our albums over here. It's an old Little Richard song and it's called Long Tall Sally. I'm not a talent, baby. Daddy had to miss it, but it's all a lot of fun, oh baby. Yeah, my baby. Oh, baby. Somebody night. Yeah. I saw you jump. The boat in his daddy. It's all a miracle, my name is a baby. I didn't know they were going to be the biggest pop group in the world. Nobody knows when you're in the middle of history, but about a week and a half into it, I started to realize that I was witnessing a cultural generational shift that may never happen again. To be with them was extraordinary. They, were, uh, they had tremendous panache on stage and privately. They were four very substantial people. Uh, John was uh, the most interesting, of course, because he said in public what a lot of people think in private. Uh, Paul was a guy who never met an audience he didn't love or like. Uh, George Harrison was not necessarily the quiet Beatle. And Ringo, surprisingly to a lot of people, was one of the most intellectually curious people I've ever met. John, thank you very much. It's been nice working with you. Great work with you, Larry. George, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Larry. Paul, thank you very much. Larry, thank you very much for the being on the trip, you know, you know what I mean? It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Ringo, thanks a lot for talking to us. It's been a pleasure. Okay, thank you, Larry. How's your wife? She's fine. <laughs> Give her my love. I will. The Beatles' 1964 tour would lay the groundwork for their next trip to America almost exactly a year later. 
And the rapport established with Larry Kane would see him again travel the country with the Beatles the next time they visited. Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, we'll head back into Abbey Road Studios to listen in as the Beatles find time to record their fourth studio album, the aptly titled Beatles for Sale. Until next time, 